How's it going, everybody? It's Chris Adams with Beyond the Blind Podcast. Uh, You can find us on Podbean at BTBN. Um, The iTunes submission is being done. I'm waiting for the validation uh, here within the next 24 hours. So hopefully you'll be able to find this one on iTunes, and it's just under BTBN, Beyond the Blind. And uh, today I'm with Brad Eldridge out of Mississippi, and he is from Parrish Waterfowl Company, and uh, man, he's been putting out some really awesome looking stuff. I just heard a sound file of the new one he put up yesterday, and it uh, it sounds great, man, and uh, how you doing today, brother? Good, man. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thank you for taking time out of your day to do it. Yeah, um, I think I can attribute my pretty calls to the blanks I've been getting. I've been trying to get really nice blanks, and, you know, I'm probably starting with the nice blanks a little too early, but it's kind of like my personality is just to jump right in there. That's the only way to do it, really, is to dive headfirst and to uh, immerse yourself in it. It can add up the expenses, but, uh, man, it's... I don't know. I see. I feel like I take more caution and care when i know it's an expensive piece of wood on the end of the lathe yeah uh fortunately i haven't messed up any really nice pieces but you know behind the scenes i did mess up a lot of pine dowels and pieces of hedge and even african blackwood so i I cut my teeth on quite a bit of junk wood before i you know felt comfortable turning anything of value so (laughs) well that's the uh the best way to do it is to you know, can serve a little bit of money starting off. And it always cracks me up when I see brand new guys that, hey, this is my first call, and they have it out of, you know, a piece of ambonia or, uh, you know, some really nice maple or something like that. And I'm like, I mean, not that maple's crazy rare or anything, but uh, a more expensive, you know, uh, burl, and that's their first call. And I was like, I'm glad that you're you're proud of it, but man, that's a really expensive piece to learn on. Right. So how long have you been turning calls, did we say? I started, no, we were talking a little bit beforehand and you were telling me a little of your background, but uh, I actually started in 2015. Um, God, I think it was March. Waterfowl season had just ended. Um, I ran a couple local TV shows here in Springfield. And uh, we were doing waterfowl TV, and I, I was actually doing that full time, um, staying at home, editing footage, uh, re- filming the show, doing everything. And once that actually went to air, it went from hunting every day to, and then coming home and going through footage and editing to doing nothing. Once snow goose season was over, I was like, man, I'm, I'm really bored. Um, you know, I, I need to go back to work, obviously, but, uh, I'm, I'm just bored. I'm kind of a workaholic. So, uh, I saw all these awesome calls everybody was putting out and I just said I was doing local TV for a living. So I had no money, obviously. (laughs) So I was like, I can't afford all these awesome calls. So I sold all my collection that I had been, you know, going through and, uh, went out and, bought a lathe and didn't know what the heck I was doing and five years later six five and a half years later I still don't know what I'm doing but uh it's a lot of fun yeah uh I I agree it's uh it is a lot of fun it's 
it's been a lot of fun and, and it is addicting too. So, uh, you know, I, I duck hunted. I was an avid duck hunter for 25 years with a poly primos winch hanging around my neck. Double, double reed because I didn't think I could blow a single. And I guess no, I, I was never really big on Facebook, so I didn't realize the, uh, the world of custom call making. And I moved here to, uh, to the little town I live in now and uh, started duck hunting with a couple of younger guys. And they had, you know, custom calls and daisy cutters and all these things hanging around their neck. And I was like, you know, I had no idea. So I started following the pages probably three years ago. And I got hooked. I mean, I started, you know, trading weekly. I'd, I'd have two or three trades a week. And I've blown hundreds of calls over the last three years. It's, it's been crazy. So I never had the desire to turn a call until uh, just this past season. Uh, put on a benefit for a friend of mine whose daughter was having uh, – she had had a liver transplant. She was in really bad shape. And uh, – they were staying in the hospital and back and forth. So he, uh, he had never really had any help. And so I put this thing on where I basically provided a duck hunt for the weekend. Um, and I got with Josh Raggio and he pulled his call trailer over to my house. And, uh, you know, we, we turned a couple of calls on site, had the duck hunt and Ed Wall came out and took pictures and after the weekend, man, it was just, it was such a, an awesome experience. I was like, you know, if I could get to where I could turn a duck call and then buy some camera equipment and at least take some decent pictures and, uh, you know, have a place out here I could, could put people up in and, and hunt and I, I could put something like that together just on a normal basis. So that's kind of what drove me to start turning calls. Dude, that is amazing. That is a uh, a really noble, you know, thing to do and kind of a way to get into it. Um, it's kind of, you know, crazy. That's Everybody has their origin story and kind of how they got going in it. And, man, it's a huge, huge advantage to try out so many different calls. Um, you know, all these different guys' calls. It's really cool just to even their craftsmanship of how everybody does it. Yeah, yeah, it is, and uh, I think my first custom call that I got was a, a cold weather fan, an RM, and uh, when I blew into it for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, I, not only can I blow into a single read, this this just has a totally different, you know, tonal property than, than what I'd been blowing a poly primos double, double read call, you know, it just, it was crazy. Well, and that's um, a... That's a heck of a one to start on as your first custom. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. I call it my first custom. I think I I got a I got a daisy cutter first, I think, and so it wasn't necessarily custom, but it was a, my first high end single read. But yeah, first custom call was the RM. Man, so, it, it's such a crazy you know, I grew up hunting uh buck gardeners, you know, just little Walmart polycarb double nasty specials. <laughs> And I remember the first time I got uh, got my Echo XLT, and I was like, "This is a this is a whole different ball game," <laughs> you know. It's yeah. it's crazy. And then uh, I started following Bobby Hayes up in Kansas City, and uh, 
had a decent collection of DLCs going. Then it was just like from there on, you know, every couple months it seems like I was just buying something different, just trying out something different, trading it, and trying to do it as low budget as I could. So the trading game became fun. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, uh, it it also it also teaches you how to be a better duck hauler because you're not only are you trying a hundred different tone boards, but you're actually blowing a hundred different duck calls. Like for twenty years, I'm duck hunting and I'm in love with it, and I hunt as much as I can. And then as soon as season's over, my calls go into my blind bag, mm-hmm. and I don't pull them out again. So I was always the go-to duck caller in my group, but it wasn't because I was a great duck caller. It was just because I had a decent cadence, and uh, you know, could you know, could knew when to call a duck. I, I growing up, I, I worked for a guy that had a sporting clays range, and we guided quail shoots and and duck hunts and stuff. And he was man, he was. He's still my, my mentor. I made a call for him, that the Cypress call that I posted on my page recently. But he, uh, as far as duck hunting, it's I, I've never met anybody that knew more about it than he does and, and how to work them. He, he guided hunts on the Mississippi River and in the backwaters and oxbows back in the 90s when, and 80s and stuff when the ducks were just crazy down here. But um, So he taught me a lot about when to call it ducks and the volume and the importance of it. And, uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's just totally different blowing a double read than than blowing a a single read custom call. Right. So So we talked about it a little bit before, uh, we went live. Um, I don't even think we've said it since we started the podcast. Where are you actually from? Uh, the town I live in is called Mound and it's the smallest town in Louisiana. Uh, there's 19 people here. And we are in an uh, incorporated town. We have a mayor and aldermans and everybody's family except my, my household. So I moved here to work for uh, one of the guys here. He's a, a grain trader. And so I trade grain. That's my day job. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so it's right across the bridge from the Mississippi River, uh, right across the Mississippi River Bridge from Vicksburg, Mississippi. So we're right on the, the edge of northeast Louisiana. I can see the levee in, in my backyard. That's wild. So you're you've uh, grew up in Missis or you grew up in Louisiana, correct? Yes, a uh, small town called Delhides, twenty minutes from where I am now, and uh, my parents still live there. So got some built-in babysitting, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I always you know I, like I told you I, I moved from. Florida, Fort Worth Beach to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and Baton Rouge and Shreveport, Monroe. I've lived all over Louisiana, and the, the end game was always getting as close to the Mississippi River as I could, and uh, I couldn't get much closer right now. So yeah, especially with <laughs> all the flooding they've had in the last couple of years, I can imagine you wouldn't want to be much closer. Yeah, well, we uh, we have some seep water in some of our agriculture around here from the High River. But uh, as far as flooding, it's on the Mississippi side more so than the Louisiana, just because of the way the levee systems work and the elevation and everything. We're in the Delta, so it's the parish that I'm in, which is where I got my call company um, name from. Uh, 
our our counties or parishes most everybody knows that but for those of you that don't uh the parish we're in has 250,000 acres of of agriculture so big farming communities i bet everybody can cook out there <laughs> yeah i'd say everybody can fend for themselves for sure we, a lot of we eat a lot of what we've caught killed or grown around here so it's uh the only thing that's affecting us right now is toilet paper. <laughs> Man, that's that's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, when I lived, I was telling you I lived down south of I-10. That was the number one thing I miss about living down here. You know, because Missouri, uh, you know, we're in between Memphis and Kansas City, about three hours from each. So those are two of the best barbecue cities in the world. Like, barbecue is my favorite food. But when I lived down there, I... I miss the Mississippi, the Louisiana food, man. It is just unbelievable. Unbelievably health, unhealthy, but uh, they're valid. But but yeah, still delicious all the same. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're known for the food for sure down here. <laughs> right. We're proud of it. So you were uh, you were telling me that there was a. Uh, a plane flying over earlier that you could just vaguely hear. I couldn't hear it much on my side, but you said it was a P-51 Mustang, and you were telling me about this this airport that's near you. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a small airport, and uh, it's, it's basically a private airport. There's a few crop dusters that use it. A few, few local, lo- local guys keep their planes out there in the hangar. <clears throat> but they have a museum out there that has a bunch of vintage planes and uh, one, you know, is the P-51 Mustang. It's got the Rolls-Royce engine in it. And for two grand, you can actually book a trip like in the, the P-51. And, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, you can go up in the old school planes. They'll take you out barrel, barrel rolling and everything. That would be so cool. I guess the question would have to be, have you done it? No, no. I have a good friend that uh, is a crop duster pilot over here, and he and his dad have a couple of Cessnas, and I'll go out there and, and hop in one of his planes, and we'll go ride around and look at ducks, and and uh, no, I, I just my God, my stomach's too weak for the for the barrel rolling. <laughs> Can't do that. I think that's see. And you can tell that you're a waterfowler because the first thing that came to my head was, oh, you have a friend with access to a plane. The first thing I'd be doing would be trying to go check out duck holes. <laughs> and, uh, and that's that's what we did. He's, uh, he has some farmland and they have a break on it. And we flew over to see if he had any birds and, uh, and he did. Very yeah, cool, it, man. It's some natural. Yeah, I mean, the, the migration here has changed a lot over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. It's obviously been a hot button issue on the internet, <laughs> and everybody has their own opinions, and I have mine, and <clears throat> mine, uh, my opinions on it are much more about uh, local changes rather than changes north of us. Everybody wants to blame somebody. Everybody wants to blame DU or heated ponds or cornfields. Tony Vandemore, <laughs> but you know, I just I feel like, and I talked to another crop duster pilot. Seem to know a bunch of crop duster pilots, but he, uh, you know, those guys they spend their life in the air. And they see ducks every day, you know, and they see 
uh, farmland and how it changes. And uh, we were talking about it, and I asked him if there was any validity to it, and he absolutely agreed. Around here, there's been a couple of things that have happened, one being um, a lot of CRP tree programs that are being put. You know, weak agricultural land goes into trees, um, and then precision land leveling. So after crops are out of the field, a lot of these guys go in, and do land leveling across their fields now to keep water from building up. There used to be a lot of low draws and raw farmland that, that held water. And also uh, corns planted earlier, which this year we didn't get as much early planted as we wanted because of the rain. But uh, typically corn is planted about a month earlier. So these guys harvest their corn late July and they're able to get the field work done to prep their fields for next year in the fall. So all the spillage and anything that was left for the ducks to eat on got turned over under the ground. So not only do you not have as much water and as as much, uh, you know, habitat, you don't have as much food um, and you don't have as much cold weather. So that's just a recipe for disaster. And with ducks, we know that they imprint on their parents. So a few years of a duck shortstop and and next thing you know, that that next generation of ducks don't even think you have to go north further south. So it's a cyclical thing and we hope it changes, but you know, farming practices around here have changed a lot. Yeah. I, uh, I can definitely see, you know, I've heard about this thing so many times and listened to different podcasts about it. And it's crazy that you guys harvest that early because, uh, here in Missouri, man, we'll, our resident honker season will start in October, and that's what I really, really love. I would love to shoot more mallards, but, uh, you know, like you said, the weather has been so warm the last five or six years that our mallard numbers have really, uh, they pushed out west to Kansas and Oklahoma, whereas here in Missouri, I am in between two flyways. You know, you have the Central in Kansas, and then you have the Mississippi. I'm 200 miles from the Mississippi, probably 300 so i'm i'm in no man's land drunk ducks here are lost or drunk or something but uh so i live for local honkers and we'll still have corn up until the first of october and different parts of the state will have it midway through october wow yeah Yeah, i mean and, and we do we do have some later corn that gets harvested you know in late august and sometimes september but it's uh not not that late for sure. And it's just because we're further south, obviously. But, oh yeah, it gets warmer uh, so much earlier. There, yeah, a lot earlier. Than, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like I said, there'll always be a few pockets of ducks that travel the Mississippi River. So I feel like being here on the Mississippi, I'll always at least have a little bit of a migration. So I take solace in that. Yeah, yeah, the odds. I mean. That's my thing is if the ducks are getting bad here, well, guess what? Oh, I'm going to start chasing honkers and I'm going to shoot the ducks that come in with them. And if it keeps getting worse, then I'm going to move somewhere that the freaking ducks are at. Like people, uh, and the real thing is the, the last thing that you said is, is the weather, man. It was, it felt like freaking Southern Mississippi and Louisiana here all season long. We had, yeah. A couple of days at under 20, under 30, but it was 70 degrees in January at one point here. Yeah, like the last two seasons we've had, you know, it, if there is a cold front, three days later it's 65, you know, and 
I found that a lot of my best days this year, just looking back on the season, uh, were on warmer days and days right before the fronts were coming in. I had some great hunts where it was 60 degrees where I was like just really getting into ducks and then thinking, oh, well, it'll be even better tomorrow. It's going to be 30. And then they'd be gone the next day. Yeah. <laughs> and there not be new birds on the front. So I was just, it's been a weird couple of seasons and, you but know. I think the birds just don't even know what to do at this point anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, we, as a matter of fact, uh, hardly saw any ducks in this little pocket of flooded timber right beside the highway that I live on and uh, I was I kept driving back and forth and thinking I was seeing decoys in mid-March and it was mallards sitting in flooded timber like green murky flooded timber just feeding their butts off and uh, in mid-March over here so it is weird and then all up and down the Mississippi River if you drive the levee little little groups and you know couples where they're pairing up of mallards in in February March you know oh yeah and that's you know our primarily throughout you know at least my experience has been here in Missouri mid December early December until the end of duck season that's when it's hot I don't even go out November midway through December it's you know you'll get your first push of gray ducks and stuff like that some green wing but nothing worth you know spending a lot of time i'm not taking a week off work in november like it's it's not a big uh big reason to do it but when it comes to december and late january that's when we usually just get you know filled up with mallards if you're shooting a duck around my area 95 percent of the chance it's going to be a mallard and uh we didn't get them they even extended our hunting season until the end of January when we used to end, I don't know, the 10 days before. And, uh, man, right around the beginning of February, we had so many mallards. Like the last week of season, we were just caked in mallards. It was ridiculous for one week of the whole season. I would take that. At this point, I would take that. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, and it's like, unfortunately, I, you know, it's one weekend and then I worked the whole week because... I didn't schedule anything off because of the whole duck season. It sucked. Yeah. I'm with you, man. It's a, it's a struggle. It's a battle every year, and we get so jacked for it. And then at the end of the season, it's take that deep sigh of relief, and it's over, and <laughs> start missing it about three weeks later. So that's kind of how it goes for me. Oh, that's called, it's called hunting, man. Right. <laughs> and I it think – that's one of the biggest reasons I got into call making was just trying to find a way to stay involved with waterfowl hunting, you know, in the dog days of summer. Right. Yeah, you definitely can. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, I don't know, a good way to pass time, and it was a, it was a fun learning experience, and it still is uh, always. It teaches me something new every day or a different way to do something. I don't know. I'm a tinkerer. So, you know, obviously, I think a lot of the guys that uh, build calls, you just have to be a, a tinker to uh, get into this thing and to try to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What was it like? So, like, walk me through your process, uh, kind of how you started, because uh, I know personally, I went out, bought my way. I had the idea that I'm going to do it. I didn't sit on this idea for a year. I went out and bought everything within like three days and then started ruining wood like 
<laughs> I think I had something that attempted to sound like a duck within a week, and uh, it took quite a while to get better. But I don't. Just walk me through your process. It's always interesting to hear how people went th- like from the start. Well, it started with uh, a spare bedroom in our house. So we we live in a um, a house that was built in the 1890s. And it was a, it was an eleven bedroom hotel originally, and now it's seven bedrooms, and it's got one hundred and thirty years of people making little changes and everything to it. And so um, we have three bedrooms, one behind the other, downstairs on one side of the house. In the back bedroom, when I first moved in, I realized that there was a shower upstairs that they had not the people that lived here before us had not been using because. The, the drain was leaking into the ceiling of the back bedroom downstairs. So I tore the ceiling out when we first moved in and fixed the drain and tore out all of the wet sheet rock up on, in the ceiling of the downstairs. And uh, for about a year, it just got put on the back burner. That bedroom became like toy central and junk room and everything <laughs> that we couldn't find a spot for. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it towards the end of the season. The wife's pressuring me. She's like, I want that fixed. I'm sick of looking at it every time I go in there. So I was like, you know, on the other side of the wall from this bedroom was my a little closet uh, that I had all my, you know, rakes and weed eaters and stuff like that in. And it was really a shallow closet, like almost like a bedroom closet out on the back porch. And I could tell that the closet for that bedroom was built into this this old closet so it kind of split them in half and and it was cased into this like high ceiling closet outside so i was like you know what i've been wanting to do this i think i'm going to use it as an excuse to um to, to get my duck call room set up so i told my wife i'm going to tear the um the ceiling out and replace it and then i'm going to go up on this wall and basically delete this uh this closet with shiplap we'll paint it white and so while she was out of town i surprised her and did that and in doing that i tore the casing from the closet out of my outdoor closet doubled it in size and then i have a ton of old barn wood like 100 100 150 year old like cypress milled thick heavy barnwood so I just went to cutting on it and built benches and shelves and that's you know we were talking about the, the pictures I was, was have been taken and you know I, it hasn't been purposeful that I had you know the backgrounds that I have it's more or less just <laughs> what I had in the barn <laughs> to, to rebuild my shop out of and then and it kind of turned out pretty cool, kind of quaint, you know. But, no, um, yeah, dude, I love it. It uh, it so. has a look and a feel to it that's just, I don't know, it's such a southern, I don't know, I don't want to offend anybody you know, from the north, but it's a southern thing, man. You can't re- you can't replicate, that's why I love these old houses, because you can't replicate the warmth that you feel when you walk in a hundred-year-old house. The way it was built, the materials that were used, if you look underneath my house, it's all like rough cut two and three by material, like old cedar and cypress uh, joists. And, and, you know, so when you come in and build your shop out of all that old wood, it just gives it kind of a, a warm look, you know, like an old house or old shop. 
So, and it's small, and I, I obviously want to expand or move it. I've got a big barn that's kind of useless. It's just a huge pole barn with no walls, and I want to enclose some of it and make it a shop. But I like the feeling of connection I have with the family because that's been the biggest thing with my wife, the trade-off of making a little bit of extra money here and there, and which I'm investing in <laughs> glue and wood. Uh-huh. And, clamps or whatever you but, never make any uh, extra money it's just reinvestment <laughs> no it is it's like just feeding addiction but um but yeah my wife isn't doesn't feel so disconnected from me because my little shop's right here i can kick the door open and the kids are playing right here by the by the shop so it's pretty cool does she hound you about any of the mess ever or do you have a uh, air system set up I, I don't have an air system i do have a shop back and uh, it is dusty and it does filter out onto the back porch and she does complain a little bit about <laughs> it, but I keep it pretty clean. I was the first, first week or so I was turning, I saw people talking about how dirty their shops stay and I was like, mine's not that dirty. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just because I really hadn't cut enough wood and now I see what they're saying. Yeah. Dirt, yeah. Dust on everything. The so. more calls you get, the better it goes. I, uh, yeah. I've lived in two different houses since I've been turning and every time it's been in the garage and it's like, you know, the, whoever is in the other side, you know, gets to park in the garage and it's like my side is the, uh, the shop side. Right. <laughs> so it's like, I, I've never, I haven't parked in a garage in like eight years. And, so does she keep dust on her vehicle? <laughs> yeah, she's not happy about it. And she just <laughs> got a brand new car last month and so she hates it. Well, then that's just a... Do you have a good air filtration system in there? No. No way. I need to. There you go. That's a good excuse. Right? To get the shop, so... Right. I have to turn more calls. So, uh, you get your duck call room set up, and then kind of... What was your your first step? Did you start collecting tools after that, or...? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I asked a bunch of questions to a bunch of different guys, just messaging people what do I need do I need this and that found videos where like like Domingo had a video about these jaw extensions for the Nova G3 Chuck and I bought those because he said how great they were at holding uh, blood and like going into it my biggest fear was like wood spinning at 3000 RPMs that's just scary yeah so anything that made me feel more comfortable I was willing to buy and so I just bought a bunch of stuff. Those jaw extensions are really nice. That's uh, so why every they, they stay pretty much hooked up to that chuck, and that's how I put them in. Uh, put my barrel, you know, blank in there and drill it out square. But, nice. Uh, so I uh, yeah. I had one that I was doing. Uh, I was turning down an insert, and I had it in a four jaw chuck. I didn't have the extension, and it was a couple years ago. And you said it can scare you. There, it made me gun shy for a while after that. I actually had one catch in a crack, and it spun know. loose, and it hit me in the top of the head, and it spun off and then hit the wall on the other side of the garage and put a dent in the wall. And I was like, thank God it uh, mm-hmm. it was spinning. You know, most of the force just rolled right off the top, kind of like Jackie Chan doing a flip and rolling on the ground. Most of yeah. the force, I think, spun out. And uh, I had a pretty good little mark on my head, and it was sore for a day or two, but it could have been pretty bad. And no face shield's going to stop that. It hit me square in the top of the head. But, uh, yeah, I was a little gun-shy for a while after that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't hurt myself too bad. I've had a couple little, you know, 
things that were close. But like one day I had my, I just got through cutting on a piece of African blackwood and it's always fun to run your hand over it after you cut on it because it's so smooth, you know? Yep. And my tool rest was really close to the piece of wood. And when I did, it pulled my thumb between the rest and the, the blank. And luckily it was just enough distance that it just gave me a nice squeeze on my thumb. And I was like, that could have been really bad. Yeah, you could have. that tool rest being a lot closer. But so little things like that, I'm learning lessons, but I'm just, I'm going it not with any fear but i'm waiting for that time i really hurt myself you know? uh um, and hopefully you don't ever really hurt yourself but those right. little ones like that you know everybody gets their little nicks and cuts teach you a lesson. oh man i had a piece of acrylic that shot off and i was being stupid i was cutting um the groove for the tenon to put an o-ring on it and uh you know nothing big took two seconds to do it and I didn't throw on my freaking visor. Just being stupid, talking to somebody and doing something different. And it actually exploded and I got a piece of acrylic in my eye. And I was, I fought to get that thing out for probably 15, 20 minutes. And then within 15, 20 minutes after that, probably a half hour, my eye was just blood red. And it, my eye was super sensitive for, I don't know, I didn't go to the, the emergency room or anything like that. I'm. I, I'm, I was okay, but uh, yeah, man, it hurt for a long time. It was just something, something being dumb. And uh, those are the little things, you know, everybody tells you, you know, all the safety things. And some of those little things you almost have to learn for yourself, but you hope that nobody else has to learn it the way that you did. Yep, you're right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, I kind of, like I started, bought all the tools and uh, bought some, uh, I went to Home Depot and got some uh, pine dowels and just started sticking in walnut dowels and started uh, cutting them into sections and sticking them on the lathe and just ripping them up. And <laughs> <clears throat> then I started sanding on them and trying to see if I could get them smooth like a real duck call. <laughs> and, it, you know, just messing around. And then I bought some yellow hedge from Doug Hess and some African black wood from... Uh, Mike Stafford and I just uh, that was kind of when it was like everything changed because at that point I was working with wood that you can actually make duck combs out of and so I started really I, I mean I, the first weekend that I grabbed the hedge and African black wood and, and put it on there I started making some shapes that I knew were kind of close to what I was wanting to get and uh yeah, within like a week or so, I kind of got enough control over the tools that I made the shape that I had been envisioning in my head for a while. So, uh, how did you come up with your shape? Well, um, I've just taken, you know, attributes from other calls that I liked and, you know, kind of merged a few different calls in my head in my head together uh and i think that feel for the lips and the hand came into play as far as the the mouthpiece of my barrel has kind of a smooth dome and i just you know from calls that i've tried a hundred different calls over the years um found that the ones that kind of curved out with the dome lip you know fit my lips better and i felt smoother on the lip and then uh 
a ball stopper, doorknob stopper. It's my my shape's not really perfectly round. It it's you know kind of a more of a doorknob shape, but uh, it just feels good in the hand. And I you know kind of played with the size of it. Uh, I started off, man, my calls were, I was just, I made four or five calls, and I was like, yeah, these are pretty cool, I like them, they feel good in the hand, and then I went into my closet, and I have like a closet room, that's kind of my gun room, and has all my hunting stuff in it, and I have, on a dresser, I have like, my little small, I've got probably 20 calls in my collection, maybe, and uh, I go in there and put my, two or three of my calls up, and they're all, like, drastically shorter than everybody else's. And I was like, oh, gosh, that just, that doesn't even look right. So I beefed them up a little bit, and I think that it affected the sound, really. They sounded kind of higher pitched and thinner, didn't have as much, you know, bass to them. And once I left a little bit more sidewall on the on the call and made them a little bit longer, it deepened the sound up and got what I was looking for. It's kind of crazy. Did you, uh, you started with a flat jig, right? Yeah, I still got a flat jig. And I think, don't you still work on a flat jig? Is that right? Six years later, brother. I do every, I have to cut and tune another one tonight. But uh, always off a flat jig and, uh, it's it's the way to go. You started out right. I started with a uh, public jig, and I ran that for about eight months. And if anything, that set me back in my learning. I wish I would have started a year earlier with a flat jig, because I'd be that much further ahead. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. It, it wasn't really like a decision I made so much as canning uh, Korea. Korea. He, uh, <laughs> Don't worry, I do the same thing. He uh, he reached out to me and was like, hey man, I got a flat jig, and he was going to send it to me free of charge, and then um, I had a duck call up for trade, he's like, send me that call, and I'll send you a few blanks with this jig, and you can just keep it all. I was like, deal. So he sent me the flat jig, and that was just what I had, and um, I'm, I'm glad that I did it off of a flat jig, because like you said, the learning curve there, and uh, just like today, uh, I have a, a, a buddy that it's crazy how many deals and barters that you end up getting when you have a trade like this. You know, somebody's like, hey, man, I'd charge you 250 for this, but, you know, if you just make me a duck call, it's like, sweet, you know? Yeah, yeah, it becomes currency, man. You make a duck call. So I had a, I made a barrel and I had a, a stopper that I'd already, like an insert I'd already done out of African Blackwood for another call, and that barrel didn't work out. So I was like, well, I'll just you know, sit in here. And, uh, so I don't remember where I was, where I was going with that. <laughs> you were talking about just how you uh, you started on the flat jig and you had had a, uh, an African Blackwood insert that was extra. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was actually it was already cut. It was uh it was already a duck call, and uh, I stuck it in the barrel and it sounded terrible. <laughs> but I, at that point, I was like, I can fix this. You know, three weeks ago, even I don't, I couldn't have comfortably just been like, I can fix this call because I really didn't know where to go. I knew how to get it down into like a shape of a of a duck call and make it quack. And then sometimes I'd get lucky and make it quack good. But I wasn't sure what I was doing to get that. And so I took the call back to work with me and uh, took a file with me. And within like 20 minutes, I had it sounding really good. And I think it has a lot to do with just the repetition of seeing how the reed sits on the tone board. Because like I can really kind of 
lay the reed on the tone board without the cork and then stick the cork in it and look at it and tell whether or not it's about to sound right or not. 100% man. I, uh, I, there's nothing that I could agree with more. I think so many call makers, younger call makers, um, young as I mean experience wise, they get lucky and I mean, they go through their work and they try to, they make a bunch of firewood, but uh, they get lucky and find that one. They're like, hey man, that sounds like a duck. I'm going to send this thing off and get it jigged. And then they go and they get that thing jigged. I think doing it like you're doing it. And I, I mean, I'm a flat, you know, jig proponent. I know Waylon did flat jigging for almost 10 years before Meredith ever convinced him to get a jig. But I think the more times that you flat jig a tone board, the more that you learn about that tone board. And now it's the same way with, uh, you know, me as it is with you. I can look at my tone board and uh, I freehand mine with a nail file and I actually will take sandpaper and cut it up in strips and wrap it around that nail file. And I'll just sit there and shape my board. And when I first started doing that, man, it would take me hours and hours and hours to figure out. Now I can, I can knock one out and... 30, 45 minutes and then set it down for an hour and come back and then hit it and make a little couple tweaks on it. And it's, uh, and that's just me being meticulous, but, uh, you just learn so much more doing that flat jig. And I think you're doing it. People get in such a hurry to go get a jig made. And then you see a guy who's been making calls for three years that has 12 custom jigs. And I'm like, dude, you've spent six grand on something that if you would have taken another year of flat jigging that, uh, you might have one or two. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, sometimes it's people getting multiple jigs for because of the progression, I guess, of their call making and, and how they like their tone board, and some of it's just guys getting multiple models that do different things so they can provide a call to, you know, different types of blowers, and that's been the biggest thing that I've been worried about is making a duck call that's user-friendly. Not, not so, I mean, I feel like I've gotten to a point in my called blowing i'm nowhere near the top or even what i'd consider like awesome but i feel like i can kind of take a a call and blow into it and if it's got a sound in there i can manipulate my air in a way that will make it you know at least sound decent and you know i found that over the last three years of blowing so much that my lung capacity and my diaphragm and everything all that strengthened so that I feel like I probably have a little bit above average air pressure. And I'm scared that, you know, maybe me blowing into a call and being able to hammer on it is one thing. But if I send it to this, you know, 55-year-old guy that doesn't blow very often, is he going to make it sound the same? I actually, uh, I've run into that to where I've had customers uh, message me and they'll be like, hey, man, this thing is set up pretty stiff. And I'm like... Uh, you know, I'll I'll go back and rework it because I set mine up to run it the way I want to. Um, and I'll, you know, flat jigging so much, you'll get into the habit. And um, you'll just blow it and blow it and blow it. And uh, like you said, your your diaphragm gets stronger. And they'll be like, hey, man, this thing is set up to run pretty, pretty stiff. And I was like, ah, that's just the way I run my calls because I put a lot of air through the call. But uh, so I had to, I always try to go back and, and make it a little bit easier to run. Easier to run than I personally like to set mine up. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a fine line. And I know, don't worry about with the tone board as much. It, like a lot of people want to come out with, you know, their call and make it 
a loud call, a quiet call, and do all these different things and have a bunch of different models. How many models does Brad Samples put out? Yeah, more. I no, think no, no, no. I think he puts out a, a one, and then he has as many. Like, yeah. And Brad Samples is about as good as they come. I know Bobby uh, Hayes has the loud timber, the con artist, and I think his old quiet timber were all off the same tone board. Mm-hmm. Because he's just adjusting the throat of it and the you know the barrel length and the exhaust, you know the size of the diameter of the exhaust. So there's a lot you can do with one tone board. Once you get a good tone board, you can open it up a little bit more, and then you can make it more aggressive. So I think you're you're doing the right things. You're figuring it out and you're you're tinkering with it, man. I that's the main reason I still flat jig. And I actually decided this year to finally bite the bullet and make a custom. And I'm actually waiting. I talked to Channing back in October. I don't have a metal lathe. I need to just break down and buy one. But I want some perfect dowels, you know, because I can get that uh, 625 to 627 pretty easily. But getting the whole entire thing at 625, I want to have a perfect one to send off to get jigged. So that way the jig's clean. But um, I think... I don't even remember where I was going with that, but basically, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't mean, remember. The, the, the only, uh, the only thing with me is I'm doing friction fit, so I don't, I don't get the, uh, the have the pleasure. I mean, I guess I could use a dowel, you know, and, and glue it into a keg, and then try to nail it. But in reality, it's just best to go, go at it, you know, chunk of wood and try to get it as close as you can and. I don't know. I just I think the friction fit, um, it just feels more natural to me. I think you tend to go one way or another with it, and uh, I went the friction fit route. And it's that uh, the friction fits uh, just that heritage, man. It's it builds that classic call. The only thing it makes you do is you really have to be where that taper is at to make it friction to fit right. Um, it, you know, it's just attention to detail. I like the O-ring for myself personally, just because I like to know where the end of the uh, insert's gonna sit. You know, your tone board's gonna sit in the barrel every time, so that way it's right. the same for me. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely I like the, both. Yeah, they have their uh, both of them have their pros and cons for sure. I mean, they would say that most of the uh o-ring calls that i've blown had probably a little more consistency you know because you do have that that seal in there that that's going to be the same every time whereas a friction fit you know you might get what you think is friction and stop and it'd be able to go another eighth of an inch you know and it changed the sound of it just because it's not where it's supposed to be and stuff like that so but uh and i'll be the oh sorry go ahead I was, I was going to say, I, went, uh, I lived down the road from, from Josh Raggio, and he does friction fit, so I kind of got his perspective on it, and, and uh, you know, after it was all said and done, like, I've done a couple of O-ring style uh, tone boards, and well, see, I that's really and did a friction fit, and I was like, ah, oh, you know what, I like this. So. <laughs> so, well, see, at least you have somebody that's uh, really, you know, good at it. That's my thing, is I'm just not... Aside from the ones that I've tried to do myself, I'm not experienced enough with friction fit to give any kind of real perspective on it other than, you know, I don't like losing my freaking <laughs> insert because I didn't do it properly uh, enough. But having, dude, Josh is one of the best at it. Josh is one of the best in the game. Yeah, I mean, that's, 
something I feel like I take for granted, but that's, uh, you know, really the first, uh, we were talking about the call making and me finding out about custom calls. It kind of simultaneously, like I did meet the guys, the, the younger guys I was hunting with that were uh, on the, the call pages and doing the trading and stuff. But like in that same year, I always do a Thanksgiving hunt with my brother-in-law. He has a, a like four big tank blinds out on uh, Caddo Lake on the Texas state line. And they really get into birds late morning there sometimes. And uh, so we're out there and he can hammer a duck call. He's, he's in, I feel like I've been blowing duck calls and hunting for so long and he makes me feel like I'm a green worm. So uh, <laughs> I, I was sitting there, I was like, man, he was blowing. I was like, what do you, what kind of calls do you have? He said, I've got this old school daisy cutter that I've had since like, 2001 and then i got this african blackwood i don't know raggio i think he's like i don't know a buddy of mine gave it to me and uh said it was like a 300 dollar call i was like what and so i got on instagram like in the blind and found raggio's page i was like this is incredible this is like art you know and saw that he was from Raymond, Mississippi, so I went to Google Maps, and I was like, this dude's 25 minutes down the road from me, so I sent him a message on Instagram, I was like, hey man, can I um, come see your shop, and he's like, absolutely, come on, so I went over there one day and sat down and talked to him for like two hours about duck hunting and stuff, and um, ever since then, we've, we've hunted a few times and, and duck hunted together, and you know, being so close to Stuttgart, I've had the opportunity to hang out with some of the greats you know it's like a a brotherhood of uh, you know all these call makers they they know each other and love each other um so had some special moments with them i take like i said i take that for granted and they've had a lot of influence on me over the last couple of years <laughs> who would you say is the uh the craziest call maker you've met <laughs> hands down ronnie ronnie freaking <laughs> turner man where where did you meet him at well, last year at Callapalooza, uh, we were messaging, messaging each other, and he was like, you know, I got a bunch of rooms at this old duck camp down the road from Stuttgart, so I went up there and stayed with him and uh, Brad Samples, J.B. Barrett, and uh, Shane Gillian, and uh, just a bunch of guys. Yeah, that's a crew. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, got, and I got to meet all these, you know, Brian Phillips, and, um, and so... This year, we rented a, the duck camp, and I'm sure y'all saw vid- videos and pictures on call notes. I mean, it was like a compound. It was crazy. It's the craziest duck camp I've ever seen. It was an old school, and they turned it into a, a, a like 14-room compound. So, That's the the one that Ronnie's a member of, isn't it? No. Uh, the, member, the club he was a member of is where we stayed at last year, and it was just like a little farmhouse in a in a farm tank you know yard out on a piece of property so this was directly across the field from the rich and tom store like behind it okay uh and the guy that i we think that the dude lived in there he had like a private room up in the front of the place and it was this huge like 10 foot wide hallway with two big living rooms a big kitchen and then four different hallways that had like three or four bedrooms on each one in two bathrooms Jeez. on each hallway. So uh, the guys said he rents it to different duck clubs around there, and 
So they may like he might have a guide service that rents a whole wing of the place for the winter and he lodges their people there. So it might be multiple groups there at one time. But uh, anyways, yeah, we we had a bunch of fun and you know while Ronnie is crazy and wild and everything, we uh, right there while we were you know having beers and playing pool and having a good time, witness to one of our fellow co makers and I won't call his name out because you know i don't want to do that without his discretion but you know he uh he said he wanted to come to know the lord and four or five of us got around him and gave our testimonies to him and you know we prayed and it was a it was a pretty awesome experience so i mean there's a definite brotherhood and um, camaraderie amongst all the all the greats it's pretty cool it's that's so cool man and that's the stuff that you know i've had hunts that are burned into my brain but the stuff that happens outside and that's kind of where i got this name for um we were doing like um interviews with old call makers callers um i was live streaming some calling competitions back in 17 18 and then i just kind of relaunched the brand and it was beyond the blind because it was everything that happens outside of the duck blind is what i really you know what really means so much and that that's the stuff i remember is like little funny parts of the trips with my friends and different people i meet you know and i can't even you know there's some things that i can remember about specific hunts and you know kind of how we did but it's the the parts of it that stick out in your your memory are the uh the little things that happen in the blind with your buddies or on the way to or at the gas station or something you're like hey remember that time that we you know you forgot your waiters or this and that you had that hole in your waiters and we ended up bailing out when there were green heads pouring in the hole because your feet were so frozen yeah like no, I, I agree wholeheartedly like most of the memories i have are definitely out years from the actual harvesting of birds it was just the you know flipping the golf cart or you know whatever there was just i i'm etched in my memory are different it's a blooper reel to be honest did you just uh, say flipping a golf cart yeah it was like a four-wheel drive or just a golf cart with mud tires and a lift kit i I All right. to even say what we we were doing. I was but, gonna uh, say, tell what you can reveal of that story <laughs> and the statute of limitations. I will say of the that park. it was dark, but it was in the evening, <laughs> and we were <laughs> being stealthy and and thought we were about to. I was like, there is a culvert somewhere out here. And about the time <laughs> I said that, uh, two tires hit the culvert, and the other side didn't. And there went the golf cart and everything in it, and it really wasn't worth the. The two birds we had. So. No, man. We, uh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I've really been trying to pay attention and not cut off, but, uh, we were coming out. We were snow goose hunting up on the Missouri River. Ah, oh, man, 2016, 17. I don't know. It doesn't feel that long ago, but I think it was. And, uh, we were coming out of the field and we were driving the levee that separated Missouri River and this guy's field. And, uh, we were in his gator. And it was me and three buddies and then my camera guy. And this guy was driving. And uh, he drops his water bottle and swerves off the levee and pulls a U-turn on the <sighs> levee to grab this water bottle. And it's like 20 feet above the Missouri River at a like a 45-degree angle. You know, a pretty steep pitch. 
and I'm from the you know the Ozarks. That's I lived in Ozark. That's the where I'm from. I'm from the mountain areas, not the Missouri River. And um, I was in the Navy, and it was you know March, early March. There's still ice coming down the Missouri River. It's cold, and I was in the Navy. If you fall overboard off a ship in the Navy, I grew up swimming. I live in Lake Country, but. If you fall overboard in the freezing water, you're going to die. That was what was in our head in the right. Navy's. So this guy just pulls it off, and he's in just a little gator. And I was like, dude, what are you going back for this freaking water bottle for? And he figured out he he had some other substance in there that he didn't want to lose, some white lightning. And uh, <laughs> so he's, he's trying to floor this gator going up the freaking levee again, and the front tires start picking up. And by that point, my feet are already on the ground as I'm about to bail off this thing and watch this guy go into the river. Wow. And, and it ends up going back down and catching it. And all my buddies were talking about it the whole way back. And I was like, dude, I was like, I was bailing out every man for himself at that point. But that's like I can so vividly remember how I felt at that point. And the hunt was I don't even think the hunt was anything good. I, I don't even remember what we shot. Yeah, it's, it's when bad things happen. It's usually not worth what what was going on or what the the hunt at stake. So right, it's funny that you mentioned the craziest. I I automatically knew you were gonna say Ronnie Turner. It, I think everybody in the whole world has a Ronnie Turner story. I was down in uh, at Worlds in seventeen, and we were live streaming Worlds, and uh, I didn't even tell him I was gonna be there, and. Uh, me and my buddy are just walking around, and he's helping me run the uh, the live stream setup. And we just got done, interviewed everybody, and we're just kind of walking around. And you know how Worlds is. There's the Stuckart's what five thousand people, and there's probably fifty thousand people in town at that point, all on Main yeah. Street. We're just walking around, and here comes Ronnie, uh, you know, tall boy in hand, come up and grab me by the shoulder. Hey, how's it going? He's with Kep and. Uh, and God, who the heck else was he with? He was with Mike. Oh, I can't even remember now. But just both of them, and they're just having a blast, talking my ear off, trying to get me to come out and hunt his club in the morning. And I was, at that point, I think I had a two-year-old and a one-year-old at home, and my ex-wife was, you know, blowing up my phone. What time are you going to be back in? I was like, I cannot do it, man. I would love to. I just cannot. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he's just a, one of the most down-to-earth guys. He and, and Brad Samples, too. I mean, Brad Samples is is crazy in, in his own quiet, you know, reserved way. He's he's extremely funny. Uh, but when I met him last year, I'd say he was the biggest surprise. Like, at before the uh, Call of Palooza last year, the first annual one, I had never had a Brad Samples call. And... You know, I saw that he was getting some hype and his calls were becoming pretty hot item. And, uh, you know, I didn't even, I don't even know if I knew he was coming, but uh, he was, I was pleasantly surprised at just how down to earth he was. He was awesome the whole weekend and uh, he was signing a tone board or numbering a tone board at, at the table at the camp that morning. And during the day, uh, he was, he was walking around and, I asked him to sh- pull it out and show it to a buddy that was standing there, Ethan Cunningham, and 
and he was like, yeah, the guy's not coming to get it. I was like, I want it. And he was like, ah. So I got my first samples call um, from him, and, and it was it was super sweet. Man. And every, every samples call I've had since then has been that way. And, you know, his while his calls sound awesome, I'd say, you know, his his character and persona is, is what really drives his um, – the hype around him. You know, he just – you don't ever see him say a crossword. He's super, just down to earth, and he's, he's so nice, man. Definitely. I uh, I got my first samples back in '16, and uh, it was still a, a triple digit numbered call. And I would kill to have that thing back. I got in a bind a while back and sold it, but I I tracked it down and offered to buy it back off. A different guy who had gotten it from the guy I sold it for, and yeah. he was wanting just insane money. I think he wanted yeah. like six hundred bucks for it, and I was like, "Dude, I got this from Brad like three years ago, and uh, <laughs> it was not even close to that much money. There's no way I'll ever buy that back from me." But um, I had just started tinkering with calls after I got that, and I went ahead and was messing around and trying to carve my own first call back in early 17 within like five minutes of me posting it on call nuts he messaged me and told me he would walk me through some stuff i mean i didn't ask him for it and uh that's just the kind of guy he is and he was like that from the very first moment he's always been super nice and willing to help out as with so many guys in the call market i uh i posted my first call on call nuts in 15 and uh mike stelsner messaged me like i don't he was like one of the first people to even help me out and it was that day and he didn't know me from anything you know so it's just that community man like you said it's just really a brotherhood it really is it's like when i first started posting calls like a part of me feels like i've almost started selling calls too fast and i mean several guys were like you know hone your skill before you put anything up for sale and it kind of happened organically i mean i've posted one call for sale on the page and uh, and sold it but other than that i've just been posting calls that i've been making and i started off making calls for friends and and family members like cousins and stuff that were reaching out to me on facebook and kind of like charging them half of what i've been charging lately just because i was like man i'm not even <laughs> but these guys wanting calls and they have to understand you know i'm just i'm new to it or whatever and and uh i kind of wish i had the first probably seven or eight by i probably six months from now i wish i had the first hundred calls that i sold or whatever however many i've sold but um you know i like i said i, I feel like i started out too early and that's another thing is with it being such a brotherhood, you, you kind of want to worry about those type of things. Like, am I, you know, starting too fast? Am I replicating somebody else's shape? Does, you know, my well, board look like somebody else's or I, whatever? It's I can like, tell you that shape thing. Um, I like your shape. It's a very classic shape. It, it just looks nice. If anybody ever gives you a hard time about that, don't worry about it um, unless it's another call maker who says that you're too close to theirs and then I would talk to them but the fanboys don't don't sweat that stuff because 90% of the time they don't know what they're talking about or they're not paying attention to detail I don't know if you've ever looked at one of my calls um, my original style I made it the way that I liked it 
and they got I got a lot of messages saying it looked too close to one of Kep's old uh, old style addictions. Right. So I messaged John and talked to him for a while, and he said, "Dude, don't even worry about it. You know, I'm I'm one guy making you know ten calls in my garage versus what John Kep is doing winning world titles." And he said, don't worry about it. Well, I went ahead and tried to retool mine again. And I've always made calls that I would want to buy. If I don't like the look of it, how the hell he, you know, could I ever expect anybody else to buy it? So uh, right. I made my shape. And since, God, for four years, I get DLC all the time. DLC years look similar to a DLC. And uh, I keep a stock photo on hand that Channing actually sent me who... We all know what the hate that Channing got when he first started. Um, and it's a DLC next to mine. And if you actually look at them, they look nothing alike. They both yeah. they both have a flair to them, and that's about it. <laughs> right. No, there, you know, there's certain attributes that uh, make calls look a certain way. You know, when I first started collecting, there were probably five or six guys that were making, you know, I would say they're probably top 20 guys out there and I couldn't even differentiate their calls. But, you know, as you, it's kind of like growing up around a set of twins, you know, if you don't know them, then you can't pick them apart. But if you know every little thing about them, it's a little easier to differentiate them. So like now it's, it's like, a, like everybody says, there's only so much you can do to four or five inches of wood mm-hmm. you know, to make it look different. So, it is what it is, but uh, I was kind of glad that nobody, at least nobody's been vocal. I figured the first few po- posts I made, if I look close enough to anybody, that somebody would say something. So I really haven't gotten any flat from anybody, so that's been good. But, uh, you know, like you said about the people being helpful, I mean, it, I can't count how many, you know, Channing mentioned that he did a FaceTime with me and helped me with my CA, and, and that helped drastically. I'm still not great at it, but I'm 50,000 times better than I was before we had that FaceTime. <laughs> and just like, you know, guys doing like video uh, uh, chats or, or uh, doing an audio you know, message where they just tell you something for 10 minutes and send it to you, stuff like that. I mean, Mig and everybody, there's so many guys that have helped me out, Sean Lynn. So it's been, uh, it's been pretty cool how, how, how supportive the community is. And I feel like that's how I want to be too. I mean, the little bit I know, I want to dispense to other people, uh, you know, to an extent, just so, uh, you know, the people that were in my shape a month ago have somebody that they feel like they can get a few answers from, you know? Yeah, man. And that's, uh, you know, like you were talking about all the guys that, that uh, have hit you up, you'll find that you're, someday somebody's going to run across, and hopefully they don't, but they're going to say something about your call. And uh, if you if you really look and see what's going on and talk to different guys who ran into the same thing, and I, I'm a nobody. Like, I just do it for fun, and I like doing this kind of stuff. This It's, it's all hobby, man. I, I love doing all that kind of stuff. But um, the guys who who are saying stuff usually are not the call makers and the the best in the business are the first guys to reach out and help you right you know so it's 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 like you said it's that brotherhood and uh you gotta 
the way I look at it is people will give their opinions, but the only people's that opinions that matter outside of my own, you know, are the guys that have been doing it forever. The best of the best. If they want to tell me something, then yeah, I'm all ears. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty nice. Like I said, just having help from, from all these different sources of wealth of, of knowledge, you know, um, it's helped with, with my progression and how fast I've been able to, to progress that and literally. Oh, spending every, every, spending every waking moment, uh, that I have in the, in the shop has been another (laughs) contributor to. Well, make sure you, uh, you pay attention and keep the, the little lady and the kids happy because, I don't know if you're anything like me, but um, I just got home from work and I messaged you saying, hey, you ready to go in 30 minutes and then I'll have to cut a tone board and it'll be getting ready to go back to bed at 5 o'clock. You have to pay attention to the uh, family and make sure she's not uh, getting angry with you. You're right, man. It's definitely a trade-off and I have a pretty patient wife, so it's, it's good and I do make an effort. Like I have a job that allows me to work a quarter mile down the road from my house and so that's a uh, that's a big plus throughout the day. And with this quarantine deal, my kids have been home, so I do get a lot of family time. So it's pretty cool. But uh, but yeah, I don't want to burn out for sure. So that's amazing, man. Well, you're doing a great job. Like I said, uh, you know, me and Channing mentioned you the other day, but that's only because I'd been seeing your stuff for the last couple of weeks and really liked it and thought that you'd be an interesting guy to talk to. And I'm glad that. You took time out of your evening. I know it's the middle of the week, not the weekend or anything crazy like that. But, uh, you know, talk to me for a while and uh, talk to everybody. Kind of let them know what's going on. Everybody that wants to turn a call always has the same questions about when starting out. So I think it's cool to give them the insight from somebody who's really just begun. And those emotions and feelings are all still so raw. I bet you can't wait to uh, go out there and kill a duck with your call this year. Oh yeah, that's you know that was the first goal was like I want to make something I can kill a duck with. I think everybody that makes a duck call's first uh, goal was to do that, and so I'm looking forward to it. I haven't decided what call I'm gonna put around my neck, but <laughs> it'll it'll probably be one of the ones I mess up. So that's the most fun, man. Every year I uh, I started off with just some of the stuff that I messed up. But now I purposely go out and I try to make a call for that season. So that way I can keep that on my mantle. And, uh, you know, 20 years from now, I'll have a a line of calls for me. season. That's a a good idea. Yeah, man. Just a little something different. But uh, like I said, man, I really appreciate it. And um, I'll let you get back to your family and I'm going to go make some dinner. But uh if if anybody wants to reach out to you and talk to you or uh, talk to you about your calls or any of your experiences, where can they get a hold of you at, man? Uh, well, basically my Facebook page. I mean, I feel like that's pretty much what everybody's using now. I mean, I, I answer my messages pretty much instantly. So um, I'll, I'll probably start a page. You know, I've got an Instagram, Parish, Parish Waterfowl Company. It's Parish Waterfowl CO. Um, but outside of that, like I said, I'll probably start a Facebook page eventually. I'm working on a logo right now, and I'm going to use like a silhouette of the facade of my, the front of my house. It's like a double front porch, upstairs, downstairs, kind of, uh, 
you know, old antebellum looking home. So I'm going to use that as my logo and I've got somebody working on that right now. So I'm going to wait till I have that before I start a page. Very cool, man. I love that idea because it's different. I love when guys go different and, you know, your your name isn't like some generic you you'll see it the longer you're i know you've been paying attention to call nuts but the longer you pay attention to newer call makers you'll see the generic names come out everybody wants to brand their stuff and it, they're all the same sounding stuff and uh it's always cool to see that touch just like your shape your branding you know you said your boss the wife takes uh takes your pictures while you're out there turning and stuff like that and it just all has that really cool um not so much original, but um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just real feel to it. Right. I appreciate that, man. I mean, that's, it's like I said, it's, it's kind of been organic. You know, it's not something that I really was trying to do, set out to do as far as the picture taking. So it was like, my wife is pretty good with social media. And so she, I was like, well, you don't, you know, you put the page on your app, on your phone, you know, you log in on the account. And so in doing that, she's been able to take pictures and have kind of the third person point of view. And then, uh, you know, I've been putting my calls in cigar boxes. I've got a pretty good response from that just because, you know, I'm sure it's not the first time anybody's gotten a duck call in a cigar box, but, um, I saw I that. Saw somebody, I saw that. asking about he smokes a lot of cigars to be able to do that. He's like, no, I bought some on eBay. <laughs> and then uh, I reached out to a local guy. He's actually running for mayor down here. Uh, he's a few years older than me. We graduated from the same school. I reached out to him. He owns a cigar store. And uh, he said, you just come get as many as you want. I was like, well, let me know, you know how much I owe you. I'll get as many as I can. And he's like, look, just turn me a duck call and you can have as many as you want. I was like, deal. So uh, for the foreseeable future, I'll be using some cigar boxes. So I saw that the other day on Call Nuts and absolutely loved it. Thanks, man. It was super well, cool, brother. Well, it was good talking to you. Uh, if you ever need anything, just holler at me, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. Yeah, brother, absolutely. And maybe come down for a hunt sometime. Dude, I, I would love, love to. Having visitors. Uh, come in and, and just get a little taste of Louisiana culture. Even if we don't kill ducks, we'll eat well. That's all I want, man. I miss the crawfish down there, and I miss the pole boys. I was in uh, New Orleans right before all the uh, the stuff went into effect, so I got one last little taste. Right. Well, yeah, it's been a different world down there, that's for sure. Everything is ghost town. So They shut it down. Here. They shut it down yeah. 12 hours after we left. <laughs> That's yeah. Crazy. yeah, I shouldn't have probably went on the trip, but I had had it planned out for like six months. So Yeah, you got to do that. <laughs> right? All right, brother. Well, I hope All you right, have man. a great night, and uh, go get some food, man. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. All right, take it easy, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. That was uh, Brad Eldridge with Parrish Waterfowl Company. Super, super cool calls. Super nice guys, you guys heard. Um it's been a lot of fun, man. I've been uh, watching his stuff come along, and uh, as you heard, super nice guy, and I was glad that he came on. Um, thanks, everybody, if you're still hanging out, listening to me ramble. Um, yeah, we got some more coming up in the next couple of weeks and days, and I have, like I said, the iTunes approval waiting. So here in the next 24 hours, you should be able to jump on and do BTBN on uh, iTunes 
And uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon.